Welcome to Clippings, the official podcast of the Council for Nail Disorders, where Drs. April Schachtel and Catherine Stiff take a closer look at articles and clippings published on all things nail disease. Listeners can suggest articles for this podcast or topics of discussion by sending an email to kristen.cnd at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the Clippings Podcast, where we review nail papers and present them to you. I'm April Schachtel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Catherine Stiff. Hey, April. All right, I have two articles for us this month. The first is titled, Opportunities to Improve Guideline Adherence for the Diagnosis and Treatment of Onychomycosis, Analysis of Commercial Insurance Claims Data, United States. And it is online ahead of print in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology as of June 2022. The authors are Jeremy Gold, Karen Wu, Brendan Jackson, and Caitlin Benedict from the Mycotic Diseases Branch and Epidemic Intelligence Service of the CDC. The authors explain that onychomycosis is an underrecognized public health problem, and they're particularly concerned about the global emergence of terbinafine resistance. The authors used insurance data to estimate the prevalence of onychomycosis, describe risk factors, and assess adherence to the AAD guidelines, which recommend confirmatory testing before prescribing oral antifungal therapy. They analyzed something called the Market Scan Commercial and Medicare Supplemental Databases using ICD-10 codes to identify onychomycosis patients and their underlying conditions. And then they used CPT codes to identify the onychomycosis-related tests and procedures. In 2018, they found that of 12.3 million outpatients, onychomycosis prevalence was 1.6%, and it affected 12.7% of patients over 65. Being male and non-rural was associated with onychomycosis, and common underlying conditions were really no surprise, diabetes, immunosuppression, and other types of tinea. 51% of patients were initially diagnosed by podiatrists, followed by 23% diagnosed by general practitioners, and only 13% were diagnosed by dermatologists in this study. Among all the specialties, confirmatory lab testing was infrequent at about 15% of all patients. 12% of patients had a histopathology test, 2.8% had a fungal culture, 2.1% had direct microscopy, 2.1% had fungal PCR, and 0.5% had antifungal susceptibility testing. Of course, some patients did have more than one test. Patients seeing a dermatologist were more likely to have had some test at 31% compared to podiatrists at 17% and general practitioners at 5%. Overall, of the 18,000 patients who were prescribed an oral antifungal, which was almost always terbinafine, slightly fewer than 10% received confirmatory testing before their treatment. I'm not surprised overall, since I think this does match a lot of the practice patterns that I see, but it was a strikingly low number of patients who are receiving confirmatory testing. The authors also found a lower onychomycosis prevalence at only 1.6% compared to previously reported 2 to 14%, so possibly reflecting differences in the study design and under-reporting of onychomycosis or a lack of nail exam in this population. 
The main limit of the paper is that it is analyzing billing and insurance data, so there can be disease misclassification and undercoding. And specifically, I think direct microscopy was probably significantly undercoded because many providers don't bill for a KOH exam due to the low reimbursement. Regardless, it's likely that the vast majority of patients are not receiving confirmatory testing before treatment of onychomycosis. The authors emphasize the terbinafine resistance and antifungal stewardship as important reasons for confirmatory testing. I would also add that it's important to do confirmatory testing so that we don't miss other diagnoses that would be treated differently like squamous cell carcinoma, other tumors, and nail psoriasis. And although terbinafine is a safe and generally inexpensive medication, three months or more is a long treatment to commit someone to without being sure of what you're treating. I find that many providers are unaware of which test to order and or how to collect the test. Uh, which is a fairly easy thing for us to teach those that we interact with. So education of all types of providers who diagnose and treat onychomycosis will be important to increase the rates of confirmatory testing. I completely agree. I think practitioners, you know, just aren't aware of the um, the benefits. And, you know, they may say, oh, they feel rushed or time constraints of the visit, but we can educate that, you know, taking a nail clipping and sending it for culture is a quick and easy procedure that can be done by any provider. So I agree we should we should be in better touch with our primary care colleagues to educate them about that. Definitely. And we just have to spread those nail nippers around to all the different clinics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. My second article of today is titled Twitter as a Tool for Nail Education. The authors are Melissa Nichols, Lindsay Gagan, Stephen Chen, and Julie Murbach. It is online ahead of print as of June 2022 in JAD International. Twitter, for those who may not be aware, is a global online news and social media website that allows individuals to easily connect, collaborate, and rapidly disseminate information to sometimes a large audience. There's a growing medical community on Twitter that uses it as a platform for continuing medical education, virtual journal clubs, including in dermatology, as well as online conferences and webinars. These authors hypothesize that Twitter may be a useful way to expand access to dermatology education to other specialties and allied healthcare professionals. They focused on nail education because we all know there are educational gaps in the diagnosis and management of nail disorders. They published five nail tweetorials, which are tweeted tutorials, in October and November of 2021. These consisted of threads of multiple individual tweets that are drafted in advance and posted one after the other. They ranged from 11 to 16 individual tweets each, covering nails in the context of systemic disease, onychomycosis, nail melanoma, nails in COVID-19, and pediatric nail conditions. The tweetorials included images and multiple-choice question quizzes, And then the authors posted an IRB-approved survey on Twitter asking participants about their user engagement with the tweetorials. The tweetorials were posted by at Dr. Stephen T. Chen, who has over 12,000 followers, approximately half of whom state that they are a healthcare professional in their username or bio. The engagement on the posts ranged from 
357 to 2,598 likes and between 78 to 500 retweets per tutorial. And a retweet is when someone reposts the material from their own account, which boosts the transmission of the material. Ultimately, 32 participants completed the survey, 63 of which were physicians and half of those were dermatologists. Of the 22 total respondents who had a clinical practice, 85% said that the tutorials were definitely relevant to their practice and the remainder thought that they were probably relevant. So this demonstrates the use of Twitter to share nail education with physicians and other healthcare professionals. These tutorials reached thousands of viewers with high quality nail education. So for those of you who are not yet on Twitter or who have not yet seen these nail tutorials, I highly encourage you to check them out. Yes, I don't have a Twitter, but I am considering getting one to check check out this knowledge. And you can, I should say, you can go onto Twitter and read the tutorials even without signing up for an account. So oh, nice. Okay. Very low bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Catherine, tell us what you read about. All right. Um, Today, I will discuss a few articles about gram-negative toe web infections. Now, I know this is not directly nail-related, but I think nail experts end up becoming digit experts in general, and it fits into this dermatology-podiatry overlap. I've had quite a few patients with this recently, and it is an extremely debilitating and painful condition. The first article I will summarize is titled Characteristics, Associated Diseases, and Management of Gram-Negative Toe Web Infection, a French Experience, by Drs. Gosset et al., published in Acta Dermatovenereologica in September 2019. A retrospective review from two general hospitals in France identified 62 patients with gram-negative toe web infections. Of these, 90% were male with a median age of 53 years. Half of patients were overweight and other social demographics included poor hygiene, homelessness, and physical labor requiring prolonged standing. The most frequent symptoms included pain, disability, and pruritus. Most patients had bilateral foot involvement with numerous interdigital spaces affected. Clinical features included erythema, maceration, and abundant exudate. Risk factors included hyperhidrosis and humidity or occlusion of the feet. Tinea pedis was clinically suspected in most patients. However, only 5 of 50 mycological swabs during the acute phase were positive. Other associated skin conditions included eczema or dyshidrosis, palmoplantar psoriasis, lymphedema, and venous insufficiency. Pyogen culture grew pseudomonas in 85% of cases. Most patients did have a polymicrobial infection, and concomitant staph aureus was seen in 40% of cases. A patch test was performed in 13 patients, 11 of which showed sensitization to topical products and or shoes, suggesting an allergic contact dermatitis could also play a role. Nearly 80% of patients required hospitalization with a median duration of 11 days. So this highlights the morbidity and substantial cost associated with this condition. Interestingly, 55% of patients received only topical treatment, such as antiseptics, topical antibiotics, or topical steroids. 
the other 45% of patients did receive systemic antibiotics. And then comorbid eczema or psoriasis was typically treated with topical steroids. And around half of patients had more than one episode, but control of associated factors such as tinnipedis, dyshidrosis, or psoriasis was associated with a reduced incidence of recurrence. So I know I just threw a lot of information at you, but um, the authors do have a nice diagram at the end of this article detailing their proposed management of patients with gram-negative toe web infections. So first, inquire about interdigital symptoms before the infection, history of eczema, psoriasis, or tinnipedis, and humidity or occlusive conditions. Collect a bacterial and mycological swab. If involvement is severe, consider hospitalization to initiate treatment. If outpatient treatment is preferred, patients should have at least weekly follow-up until healing is observed. And instruct the patient to wash their feet with soap or an antiseptic, dry with a hair dryer after shower, and separate toes with gauze or other methods. Consider covering with a gauze impregnated with boric acid or acetic acid for 15 minutes one to two times daily, and topical steroids if there is associated eczema or psoriasis. Consider doing a biopsy of persistent lesions and patch testing. And it's really important to spend time counseling the patient on the importance of maintaining dry inner space, and you may even need to initiate appropriate treatment for hyperhidrosis. Interestingly, the diagram did not include systemic antibiotics as their um, treatment recommendation. And I think that's reasonable if you catch it early when it's like only one or two toe web spaces involved. The cases I've seen recently have had complete like desquamation of their plantar feet and between the toes. And uh, two of them have even had hand and finger involvement. So for these, we initiated systemic antibiotics with ciprofloxacin for 14 days. And an additional article by doctors Rosenblatt et al. from Dermatologic Therapy in 2019 showed that soaking for 20 minutes daily for at least 10 days with 5% acetic acid diluted in water, in addition to topical or systemic antifungal therapy, was also an effective treatment. So I um, have counseled patients to try the soaks like one to two times a week, even as maintenance, once they, the acute phase of the disease have, has resolved to try to reduce recurrence. So that is the first couple of articles about like the background and treatment. But I wanted to mention a, a few other articles I found that discuss methods for keeping the interdigital space dry and clean because it's easier said than done. Uh, recently, Drs. Gupta et al. published an innovative technique for the separation of toes to prevent and treat intertrigo of the toe web space in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology in June 2022. And I would highly recommend looking at the picture, but they describe using adhesive tape to separate the toes so for example, if a patient experiences maceration between the second and third toes, they can tape the first and second toes together and then the third and fourth toes together to assist in keeping that web space separated and dry. And this is simple, effective, and cheap. 
However, it does only allow for separation of two web spaces at a time. And an alternative method was described by Drs. Gupta et al., the same Dr. Gupta, in December 2019 in the Indian Journal of Dermatology, Venereology, and Leprology. So they created a customized toe separator using a hot glue stick. So first, a small piece of the stick was cut to the required size and then molded by pressing on a hot iron to flatten the ends on both sides. A piece of butter paper was placed between the glue stick and the iron to avoid sticking. And this glue stick can be molded to the desired shape so that it snugly fits between the toes. And once again, the figure, like a picture, uh, speaks a thousand words. And I thought these were great, affordable, and not bulky methods of keeping the toes separated. I plan to print these articles and give them to my patients. Those are great. And I agree. The photos are really good. I think it might take some trial and error to figure out what works best for each individual patient. I would add that I also really like Burroughs aluminum-based soak for drying those wet spaces out. Mm -hmm. I've used that quite a bit. Great. All right, Catherine, thank you for joining me on this episode of Clippings. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. To all our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we are doing and which articles you would like us to review on the show by contacting kristen.cnd at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter at Nail Disorders. 